Have a seat and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to round out the rest of Matthew chapter 8 uh, today as we continue in our series through the book of Matthew called uh, Upside Down. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 34. Follow along with me, if you would. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I think the reality of the world we live in is that we're not amazed by much anymore. There's nothing that kind of catches us by surprise. We see everything unfolding in the world with ease in real time as cameras and satellites and internet make it possible to know what's going on everywhere, but not just with what is going on in the world through, uh, through CG and digital technology. We can see things that aren't even real. It's kind of interesting, my 10-year-old, uh, who's not that much younger than my 20-year-olds had a very different experience growing up watching movies or TV with, with trying to understand what is real and what is not. See, even 10 years ago, technology was so far behind that it was kind of obvious what was fake. But anymore, you can see just about anything you want in the movies, and it looks Real, so hard that it's uh, so so good that is that it can be hard at times, especially for younger kids, to distinguish what is real and what is not. We are just not amazed by much anymore. In contrast to that, we're angry at a lot these days. And there's much to be angry at, sometimes not so much. Things changing too fast, things not changing fast enough. News and social media tends to be fuel for our anger, which I would propose, both of which are bad sources of fuel for our anger. But We see what's going on, real or fake, spun or not, in the world, and sometimes... We just get far too angry. We see kind of both reactions in this text and in these two miracles of Jesus that we'll look at today. We see first Jesus' calming of the storm and the reaction of the disciples in amazement. And then we see the casting out of these these demons from these two men. And we see the response of the city 
in anger, and we'll unpack that here in a minute. I think there's two real obvious things that this text is showing us, and we're not going to spend a lot of time at the obvious. We're going to dig in deeper, but these two things are, number one, that Jesus has power over the natural and the supernatural. I think the reason these two miracles are put together for us by Matthew and by other authors of Scripture as well is to show us both that Jesus has power over natural occurrences, and so a storm arises And he has power to calm the storm. Immediately after this storm where he exerts his power over nature, he is able to cast out demons from these two demon-possessed men, showing that he has power over the supernatural. We also see the differing responses of people. As I've already mentioned, the disciples were amazed when Jesus calmed the storm. Are, Are you amazed by much? these days? Do you stand in awe and wonder by much? And then the Gadarenes or the people of the Decapolis, this is the northwest area of the Sea of Galilee, a region of Gentiles, and they were angry when Jesus cast out these demons. Are you angered by much these days? We should be amazed at times and we should be angered at times. The trick, I think, between these two is the proper application of them both. We can clearly see That Jesus had power over the natural, over storms. We've seen a lot of that as he heals sickness and disease. But we also see that he has power over the supernatural. But if we dig a little deeper, I think there's some lessons we can learn from these. And so today I want to look at two problems, two miracles, two reactions, and two revelations. Two problems confronting the people in these stories, two miracles that Jesus performs, two reactions from the people, and then two revelations for us. Let's start with two problems. And these are pretty obvious. I don't think this is going to take a lot of time for us. Uh, But there are some details we don't want to miss. The first problem that we encounter in this text is that of a storm. Uh, The Sea of Galilee often uh, gets ignored in terms of where it's located relationally to sea level because of how deep the, the Dead Sea is just a little ways south. But the Sea of Galilee is significantly below sea level. There are much more mountainous areas, much taller mountains. In fact, Mount Hermon, the tallest point in Israel, is not too far off from where the Sea of Galilee is. And so what often happens is cold weather, cold storms come off these mountains. That water drops quickly, and as it comes down to where the Sea of Galilee is, it creates these very churning waves and storms that hit the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee because of how, how fast that cold air is dropping down off of the mountains at the Sea of Galilee. And so they stir up big waves. These boats uh, maybe were, um, were powered by sails. In a storm like this, you would not want to have sails up. And so most likely, the disciples are rowing. Jesus, meanwhile, the disciples are rowing. They're in the middle of this, uh, this lake, huge lake, And they are beginning to get worried. Jesus, exhausted, meanwhile, is underneath the boat sleeping. We see a real incredible picture of Jesus' humanity here as he's been healing and teaching and pressed by crowds. And and he goes to leave. He he commanded the disciples uh, to go to the other side. We saw that last week in verse 18. And so as they uh, embark on this journey, Jesus goes into the bottom of the boat and he is asleep. And the disciples are rowing to the best of their effort, but likely not making 
any progress. That's the problem that we are confronted in the first portion of this text. The second problem we're confronted with is two demon-possessed men. They reach the other side of the sea, again, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, also called the Decapolis, which there was likely 10 cities around there. That's what Decapolis means. And it's a region full of Gentiles. And they get to this point, and not only do they encounter these two uh, demon-possessed men, but notice it says they were coming out of the tombs and they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so not only are, is there a problem of these two demon-possessed men, but the, demon of the, or the problem of the impassibility of where they landed and, and entrance into that area because of these two demon-possessed men. There are two problems, a storm and a couple of really violent, demon-possessed men. Jesus responds to both of these problems with two miracles, two miracles. Obviously, the first is the calming of the storm. The disciples come to get Jesus because they're afraid, and they ask him to save him. them. Clearly, they understand that he has the power to save. So after this boat arises, or after this storm arises, rather, so that, as we're told, the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, end of verse 24, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The boat is about to sink, they know they're in trouble, and they go and they get the one who they know can save them. The miracle is pretty incredible. Jesus simply rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I love the way um, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who put together a small children's Bible uh, called the Jesus Storybook Bible, speaks of this because the question they ask, and we'll come back to this question, is what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? If we understand Colossians and other passages correctly, we, we understand that it was Jesus who created all things. John 1, nothing was created that was not created, that was nothing that was created was created apart from him. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, they had heard this voice before. And he simply speaks, and there is calm on the sea, and they are able to pass by to the other side. The second miracle is a little more complex, and it's going to require some digging because there's some things here that we may not understand if we don't understand the larger uh, biblical context. But the second miracle is the casting out of these demons. And clearly, Jesus cast these demons out into swine, and the pigs go running down into the sea, and they drown. The question is, what's the deal with this interaction? Look with me at the text again. They meet him, and in verse 29, they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? There's the first, of, or first two of their questions. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. What is going on here when these demons ask him, Are you here to, cast, or to, to, to torment us 
before the time. Well, we're going to have to rewind all the way to Genesis 6 and look forward all the way to Revelation in order to understand some of this. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But if you know your biblical history, you know that Genesis 6 is the flood. There's sin that enters the equation in Genesis 3, and things begin to go awry. And then Genesis 6, right before the flood, as, as that chapter opens, Moses wants us to understand how bad things have gotten. And it's not just how bad things have gotten with people, it's how bad things have gotten with fallen angels. Listen to the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, so people are multiplying, they're having children, Verse 2, the sons of God. Now, this is an interesting term. We see this all over, uh, maybe particularly in Psalms, but we see it in other places. There's little disagreement from, uh, from those of us who study such things that this Hebrew term, sons of God, is a reference to demons. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. There's a couple interpretations here. One interpretation is that um, these demons are intermarrying with women and they're producing half-demon, half-person offspring that is these mighty men of old who are called the Nephilim in verse 4. I don't think that's what's going on here. Nothing in, in Scripture tells us whether or not angels can or cannot procreate, but what we do see from our text in Matthew 8 today is that demons are inclined to possess, if not people, something, even pigs to nothing. But here, I think what's going on in Genesis 6 is because of the perversion of angels, they are, uh, of these demons, these fallen angels, they're possessing people and then marrying women so that by possessing people, they might have uh, a sexual relationship with these women. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years, so God limits the number of, men, uh, of years people can, uh, can live. And then verse 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. I don't think the Nephilim are a reference here to the offspring of these sons of God and daughters of men. If you'd like a Hebrew lesson, I can give that to you later and explain why I don't think that is. But we can clearly see in, in the English that the Nephilim were already on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So how do you have children on the earth already who are then being born to this it just doesn't work out. You know, you can't have children before you have children. Your, your children aren't on the earth before you have them. So it just doesn't seem to work out that way. The word Nephilim just means mighty ones. And I think what Moses is doing here is giving us a time reference uh, of, of when these events happen. But the bottom line is that these, uh, th that things on earth, and not only just with people, but with demons, had gotten really, really bad. And we know that God punishes the people and kind of cleans house on the earth with a global flood. But what did he do with the demons who had stepped outside of their bounds and crossed God's moral lines so severely? 
Well, Genesis doesn't tell us, but I think if we're paying attention, in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude, verse 6, we see what happens. So let me read those two passages to you. In 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5, notice the time frame that Peter's going to refer to us. Uh, In talking about the judgment of God, Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, clearly, Peter is talking about some angels who sinned so badly that they've been locked up until Revelation 20, until the time in Matthew 8 where there will be final judgment and they'll be locked away forever. And the angels are asking, hey, are you coming to torment us before that time? Are you coming to lock us up like you did those others? Clearly not all of the demons, Matthew 8 makes this obvious, that that all these fallen angels who, who have sinned against God, clearly not all of them have been locked up and kept till judgment. Listen to verse 5 where, where Peter gives us a, a time frame for these events. He says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so right here, we're back to to Genesis chapter 6. And Peter seems to be indicating to us or for us that there were some angels who sinned so badly that they were locked up in, quote, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. I think Jude 6 makes this a little more clear when it says, when Jude in verse 6 says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, and I would say whatever's going on in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is a pretty good indication of demons going outside of their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What did God do with all of these demons in Genesis 6 who had gone way outside of their bounds? Well, he flooded the earth, but he locked them in hell until later in Revelation 9. You can see there that they're let out and they're allowed to torment people for a time. In fact, what Revelation 9 says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven. A star fallen from heaven. This is not a, uh, a what but a who, because listen to what comes next. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the sha- with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And so in Revelation 9, during the tribulation, all these bad demons are let out to wreak havoc on earth for a time. And then in Revelation 20, they are ultimately locked up. Now, what is the point of understanding all of that? (laughs) Well, I think that's the question that the demons are asking here. We know a time is coming when we will get locked up just as all the rest of those who had gone too far were locked up, have you come to torment us before our time? The point of this is to show us that these demons not only knew who he was, but they knew that he had authority over them. They were completely at his mercy. 
And so, because they did not want to be locked up in chains of gloomy darkness until the time they asked him to be sent into the pigs. Well, there's a question for us here. If demons who hate God don't want to be locked in hell, maybe we should pause and consider our eternal state as well. Why did they want to be sent into pigs? I don't know. I don't know. There's a few answers out there. Everything's a guess because the text just doesn't tell us. But I think I know why Jesus granted the request. I think he granted the request because it was visible evidence of his power. It's one thing to say you have power over the supernatural. It's another thing to demonstrate that. And one of the things we see about Jesus over and over and over again is that he didn't primarily heal backaches and headaches and stomach aches, though he may have. What we're shown in Scripture is, is tangible miracles. People who could not see who now see, the dead who now live, crippled and lame who now walk and run. The, these pigs rush off and, and die by drowning in the lake as, a, as what I think from Jesus is a tangible display of his power over the supernatural. And so we see, we see two, uh, two miracles. We see the calming of the storm and the casting of these demons. We also see two reactions. And the first is that of the disciples, and it is amazement. He said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And he rose, verse 26, and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled. This is a good thing. They were amazed at him, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the wave obey him? I think the answer to their question, well, it's found in many places. You could look at Psalm 89 and Psalm 65, but I think Job 38 stands out most to me. As Job asked questions, or is asked questions, like, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and, thus, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. As Job is questioning God in the middle of his trials, God comes to Job and he asks him, Where were you when I set the foundation of the earth, when I set the boundaries of the sea, when I told the lightning bolt where it should go? Have you seen the storehouses where I keep snow? If you don't know already, uh, the, the song Indescribable, Chris Tomlin, you probably know it. It's written from the book of Job. Who has told the lightning bolt where it should go? Or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? And so God is asking Job. He's comparing Job as creature to himself as God. Who but God can tell the storm and the sea and the wind and the waves and the snow and the lightning and the mountains and the shores where their lines and limits are? Only God can do. 
And so when, when he speaks, when he rebukes the wind and the waves, the natural question is, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? But right even within the context of the book of Matthew, we're given the answer to this. Because last week, we saw that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This title from the book of Daniel, chapter 8, that has incredible meaning to us as the Son of Man is presented before Yahweh and given the power and authority and kingdom of God himself. Now, we see that the demons answer the question, what sort of man is this? Verse 29, he is the Son of God. No mere mortal, but the very Son of God. The second reaction comes from the gatherings, and it is anger. The demons are cast out. Those tending to the pigs run off to the city and tell them what happened, especially about these two uh, demon-possessed men, and everybody comes out. Now, notice what it says after he casts them out. The herdsmen fled. Why do people flee? They usually flee in fear. They didn't go quickly like the Samaritan woman at the well. They fled. They ran away. They fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Now, this might sound like a good thing, except they beg him to leave. Why say anger here? Well, because I think what the people is going on here is the people are more upset about their loss of pigs than of the glory of the Son of God. Their livelihood, their money, their food had just been cast into the sea. As, and, and they're ignoring the fact that these two demon-possessed men are now sitting there in their right mind, as we see not only here in Matthew, but also in Mark and in Luke. They're upset. But when somebody displays this kind of power, you beg them to leave rather than forcing them to go. <laughs> After this incredible display of power and they're upset, Jesus is run off by them. They wanted him to leave. I think the question before us is, how do we respond to the truth of the gospel? Do we respond with anger? Because to put it in today's moral terms, Jesus is essentially here Sin non-affirming. Do we respond in anger because Jesus wants to remove our sin from us? Do we say, you don't get control over my life, it's not worth it, just go? Do we respond with anger because the gospel doesn't tell us that we're perfect and all right and don't need anything? See, the message of the gospel is not that you and I are okay and that God has come to give us some things that we want just because he's nice. The message of the gospel is that none of us are okay, that we're all wretchedly sinful, so much so that none of us can save ourselves. Only he can do that. 
Only the one with the power over the natural and the supernatural. Only the one who can live perfectly and die in our place and rise again. He is the only one who can do it for us. And I have news for you. If you think that you're just depending upon Jesus in this life, but you won't have to in the next, you don't understand the depth of our depravity or our need for the Savior. Now, while in eternity we will not struggle with sin anymore, every single day from now till forever, we will see clearly as the disciples were able to still put their hands in his wounds, we will see the physical evidence that we are there for eternity on the merits of somebody else. And do we stand amazed that God would love a wretch like me? Or in anger, because his message is not, well, you're all right already. Let me just help you out a little bit. See, what displays his love for us is not that he died for us when we were okay, but that while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were haters of God, he loved us and sent his son, and at the right time, Christ died for us. How will we respond? How we respond to what we see in Jesus is more important than anything else about us. And so there's two responses, and we get to choose ours today. Lastly, we see two revelations, two, two things that are revealed to us about the power of Jesus. Yes, already over the natural and the supernatural, but again, I want to dig a little deeper. See, the, the demons recognized, well, let me rephrase this. The first thing this reveals to us about Jesus is his power. Yes, we've already seen that it's over the natural and over the natural, but what should not be lost on us in this text is the power of Jesus. The the demons recognized three things about Jesus, and we should too. First, they knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And when they ask him this question about coming to torment them before the time, they refer to him rightly as the Son of God. He was no mere mortal. He was the God-man. I know we like to say fully God and fully man, but that's a little confusing, right? He was truly God and truly man. Not like some 50-50 mixture. He was eternally the Son of God who became man. Why is that such an important thing for us to recognize? Because as Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans. Something has to die because of our sin. And God cannot die. So it has to be a person who dies in our place. But as Psalms tells us, the the cost of the ransom of our lives is so costly that no one can pay the price. That, it would ever, that would ever suffice to keep us from seeing the pit, the grave. So it can't be just a mere man who pays for the life 
of many people. The the life of one mere mortal is not valuable enough. But as God, he makes an infinitely valuable payment to cover not only your infinite sin, but mine. And not just for me or you, but for all who would come to him in faith. As God, he makes a valuable enough payment for all who would respond to him in trust and repentance. And as man, he is able to die in our place. They knew he was the son of God. Second, they knew that there was a final judgment and that suffering and torment is a possible outcome of that. The vast majority of people we meet tend to believe fallacies, whether that's that there is no judgment, or that somehow on our own we'll escape judgment, or that our good things in this life can overcome the bad things and therefore we'll succeed in judgment. But these demons, they knew that there was a final judgment, and they knew that because of their sin, suffering eternal torment was a possible outcome of that. And thirdly, Jesus had the authority to do to them as he wished. They could see that he had the authority to do to him as he wished. The reality is that Jesus is the only way to be spared of that final judgment, to have the record of our debt canceled, as we're told in Colossians. The second thing this reveals to us is not only the power of Jesus, but the concern of Jesus. And this is where this passage gets a little convicting. Jesus cared about the disciples. He cared about their condition. He wasn't sleeping in the boat because he didn't care. He was sleeping in the boat because he was exhausted from caring for so many people for so long already. He also cared about the demon-possessed men who without any request from him, just casts out the demons. Mark and Luke record for us that one of the two men begged with Jesus to go with him. Take me with you. These people ask Jesus to leave, and Jesus gets on the boat and he does. And as he's going back to the other side, one of these demon-possessed men, they say, let me go with you. And he does, maybe in our minds, what, be, what, what might be the unthinkable And he tells him, no. He says, you stay here and you testify to what I have done. And apparently, he did his job. Because the next time we see Jesus come to the Decapolis, the people receive him warmly rather than running him off. Apparently, this man's testimony of what God had done for him, of what Jesus had done for him, softened the hearts of the people to his reception the next time he shows up. Could it be that Walla Walla is our Decapolis? That our job is not to say, Just say, Jesus, I'll be with you wherever you are. But like the garrison demoniac, that Jesus has left us here in this place to go and testify of what he has done for us, 
so that people might have the opportunity to either respond in amazement or anger? Why, why do we get so surprised when people do respond in anger? People have been responding in anger for a long time. In fact, I bet if we took a survey of the room, we would find that maybe many of us responded in anger until such a time as we didn't. But our job is not to say, wow, look how amazing and powerful Jesus is. Look at how much concern he has for me. Our job is to be a testimony to the power and the concern of Jesus to everyone we come into contact with. It's our job to tell people what he's done for us. It should be seen as our joy to tell people what he's done for us. But we also see, this is where it gets even more convicting, we also see that Jesus cared about the disciples. This is an interesting uh, exchange he has with them. He gets into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, he, but he was asleep. And so they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Doesn't this seem like the right response? The storm has arisen. Life is tough. The waves are crashing in on us. We're trying to row our boat to the other side. We're not making any progress. We're not getting there. We look at our lives or our families or our job or whatever it is and we say, I'm sinking. There's, there's nothing here that I can do for myself. And so we go to Jesus in faith as the one who can save us and we say, Lord, you have the power to save us. Save us. Doesn't that seem right? But he says to them in verse 26, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Jesus calls them of little faith for their fear, even though they believe he has the power to save them. I think fear is dominating our culture. We fuel it by social media. We fuel it by comparing ourselves to others. We fuel it by the news. We fuel our fear in many, many ways. And then we go, but Jesus can save. We call it anxiety and we medicate it. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. I'm not saying it's not. But have any of us stopped in the middle of our anxiety to ask the question, how much of my fear is because of the size of my faith? See, they trusted that Jesus could save, but not enough to not be afraid. I'm going to say something hard, and I hope, you can, I hope you can receive it. Because we're all prone to fear. Certainly I am. I'm convicted by the very words that I'm saying. But can I charge 
that maybe the presence of our fear in our lives reveals that we are more controlled by our circumstances than by the word of God. That our fear reveals that our trust is small. Lord, you can save us. I'm just not sure you will. Lord, you can save me, but I don't trust that enough to to actually believe it. I wonder what would happen. What would happen if we looked at the scriptures more than our cell phones, more than the news, more than our TVs? I don't want to sound too harsh here, but I'd like to give us all a challenge. If you find yourself being dominated by fear and anxiety, I'd I'd like to challenge you to spend 30 days committed to being in God's Word more than whatever it is is, that is fueling that fear. If CNN or Fox News is on your house on repeat, Shut it off and turn on an audio Bible. If social media and comparing yourself against the fake projections of others, that's all that social media is. If that's what's fueling your fear, shut it off. Set a time limit on your phone and commit to spending more time in Scripture. Maybe if we spent more time being amazed at Jesus, we would spend less time being afraid of our circumstances or even angered by them. I think we would see a huge reduction in fear. The reality of this passage is this. He cares and he is mighty to save. Lord, thank you for caring not just about the big things, but about the little things. May our trust in you not extend only to saving us from the consequences of hell, but to guiding us perfectly according to your plan for our good and for your glory. May we have a deep and abiding trust in you. And We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing our last song, I just want to give you an update and make a couple of requests about food and friends. If you don't know what our food and friends is, we have the opportunity uh, to kind of partner with the school district in a couple of ways. We have more partnerships that are coming, but the first is to to provide food throughout the school year for uh, kids who are food insecure. Uh, We have an 